Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Pod Save the Queen! Hello and welcome to Pod Save the Queen. I'm your host, Zoe Forsey, and I'm joined this week by Tom Bauer to talk about his new book, Revenge, Meghan Harry and the War Between the Windsors, which is the latest kind of huge biography of Meghan uh, and Harry and the rest of the firm. So hi, Tom. Welcome to Pod Save the Queen. How are you? All well, thanks. And it's a, it, I must say, it's a beautiful book. I love the cover of it. It's really kind of a striking, the gold and black, I think, is a really striking look. You must be very happy with it. Well, I am. A lot of work went into it, a lot of discussion. It wasn't an automatic uh, <laughs> uh, birth. It had a lot, of, uh, a lot of criticisms and a lot of work went into it, so there we are. Lots of, lots of hard work, but all paid off. So before we kind of jump into the book, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you. So you've written lots of biographies over the years. Um, how did you get How did you get into this? What were you doing before you went down this route? Okay. Well, uh, in a nutshell, I'm a grammar school boy from uh, Hampstead, and I went to the London School of Economics. I studied law, and then I became a barrister. Hated that. Wanted to become a journalist. <laughs> Worked very hard to try and find a job, worked for the Sunday Times in Brussels, then worked for BBC TV for 26 years and made endless documentaries on Panorama and elsewhere. And while I was doing that, I began writing articles and then writing my first books. And finally, after BBC, having done a programme, my last documentary about Robert Maxwell, his last year in power in life, and began writing books and articles full time. And on the royal issue, my first book on royals was about Prince Charles four years ago. Uh, That was called The Rebel Prince. It was very critical of Charles, exposed a lot of his life that most royal writers had ignored or were unaware of. And he hated it. It was a number one bestseller. And uh, I suppose that gave me an appetite for the royal family and more. So that when uh, Meghan gave her now infamous interview to Oprah Winfrey, uh, I thought this woman really is not what she seems. What is the background? Obviously, by then, the whole world wanted to know who is Meghan Markle. And that was the incentive for me then to write this book. Fantastic. So how does writing about a royal compared to, as you said, you've, you've worked with politicians, you've done Gordon Brown um, and loads of celebs. How does doing a royal compare to doing the other side of it? Well, actually, the, on the politicians, I did Boris Johnson last book and Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and written lots about tycoons like Robert Maxwell, Richard Branson and about Nazi war criminals and about the intelligence world. So there's a whole range of books. Um, they're always the same. The, 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 the criteria is to find out what nobody else knows. 
And when it comes to the biographies, I only write about living people, only write about people who are controversial and likely to be very angry with me for writing about them. <laughs> and the trick is to find their victims, people who they were harmful to, hurt, were rude to, crushed, humiliated on their way up the greasy pole. And so with Megan, it was exactly the same, trying to find out the people who she'd insulted. But I also tried to find the people who are nice about her, her friends and family. But she uh, exceptionally uh, did her best to prevent me talking to many, many people who she'd worked with in Hollywood, in Toronto, in London, elsewhere. Uh, because unlike anyone else I've ever written about, she really does control her narrative, her background in a very ferocious way. So it was a challenge all the way through to try and find people, but I found over 80 who actually did talk to me and gave me a, what I think is, in the end, an untold and compelling story. It's a gripping story. So there has been, as you said, you quite famously tell the... My kind of example of this is, you know, Finding Freedom, which was the last big book we had about Meghan and Harry, which was very different to your book. That was a lot more positive, had a lot more kind of a spin of it that side. There's been a lot of, you know, some people have said that your book is very critical, is very negative towards Meghan. And then you said in finding these stories of people that perhaps she hasn't maybe had the best relationship with over the years. What do you say to that feedback? Well, I think Finding Freedom was written with her cooperation and, in my view, was not only gloss on her life, but actually distorted her life in her favour. Uh, it was just over the top, uh, glue and glucks and, uh, and sugar, uh, and was, I think, very unreliable. On the other hand, it did give her point of view. Uh, and so I do quote a lot of that book, but often to say it's untrue in, this, in, this, in these places. Uh, it, my book is critical, but it's also uh, balanced, in my view. I mean, I do think Megan is a remarkable woman because, uh, she, and in her own terms, she is a success because she came from a broken family, which is always a challenge. It, she didn't have a poor upbringing. She had a rather comfortable upbringing, but it was tough, undoubtedly. And becoming an actress is very, very difficult. And what I do admire about Megan is that she never was intimidated, was never, didn't mind all the humiliating slights which she received as she struggled to get parts and uh, persevered. And I think that's very um, admirable. And she was very ambitious. And when she did finally get the part in Suits in Canada, she then developed this um, website, the TIG, which was very successful. Uh, and so, and she was a success in that, in Suits, although it was a tiny audience and a very, niche market but nevertheless but you know the thing about Megan is that she always wanted money and she wanted to marry somebody famous who could give her a good start in life and she did target Englishmen from a very early stage from about 2013 onwards she came to London looking for an Englishman a rich Englishman or a famous Englishman or both and in the end she found it she found it in Harry and it was an amazing success for her so Yes, she is critical in the sense that the way she treated people on the way up uh, was in many instances terrible. But on the other hand, it reflects her. She is a very, I think, complicated person, but single-minded. And the stories of her uh, marriage and her relationships and her 
behavior on set uh, in uh, in various positions, her relationship with her father, how she ghosts people, is all very interesting. And, it's a, and I really, in the end, now having finished the exhausting course of researching it and writing it so it would be a seamless narrative and a good read, uh, look back at it and think, well, uh, you know, job done and the huge sales and interest in the book show that it's, it's, it was a good job done, I suppose, immodestly, I can say. So talk me through the process. So you just, as you said, you sat down and watched that interview, as I think pretty much all of us did. So certainly everyone listening to this podcast probably did. So how how do you start off? So you said that, you know, you've thought, I want to write about Meghan Markle. Where on earth do you start? Well, I think what really happens in my mind is, because I try to give a praise of my life. Um, I always start with a thing, the extraordinary phrase, but uh, why are the buggers lying? <laughs> and, uh, and how they hope to get away with it. And the thing about Megan was that there were so many, I got to call them lies in this opera, Winfrey, whether Archie was going to get a title or protection or about that she hadn't got married on that day in Windsor, it was earlier. And there's so many things which she said which were patently untrue and inaccurate. And I, why did she do it? I mean, what was the purpose? And it was so beautifully well rehearsed. And Oprah was just outrageously um, compliant. She never once challenged, for example, Harry's version of this allegedly racist comment about the appearance of Archie. Um, Harry says it was soon after he met Meghan. Meghan said it was when she was pregnant. I mean, those contradictions. So it is when I see the dishonesty, whether it's Meghan or Robert Maxwell or Richard Branson or whatever, that I think here is the chance to actually discover the truth. And this has interests me to find the truth. I mean, the whole point about this sort of journalism and writing is, it's, it is a hunt, is a challenge because the person you're writing about doesn't want you to write the book. They don't want you to find out the truth. And the pleasure is snubbing them. And they are rich and powerful invariably. And I'm just one man alone by, by my, with a telephone and a computer and resources um, limited, but nevertheless, they're there. And uh, to get the book finished and in hardback and printed and all the rest of it through the lawyers is the challenge. And I was going to say, done, that must feel... be the complicated bit. We, you know, yeah. we have to go through so many the conversations we had our legal team to just do kind of verse, you know, like lines from the book was difficult enough. So I can't even imagine how long does that bit of it take? Well, I mean, it, it, funnily enough, it doesn't take as long as you might imagine because I've gone through it so many times. 26 books, 150 or 200 uh, BBC TV um, documentaries about the same sort of thing, uh, endless newspaper articles, God knows how many thousands. So on the whole, I only write things I know are going to get past the lawyers. Then it's a matter of nuances and discussing how we can say the same thing in a different way or alternatively sometimes very sad you have to drop something um but i'm very conscious of that i mean i've been i've been sued many many times i don't want to go through the process with megan uh and her lawyers are people i know very well keith Schilling, he's uh, sued me a couple of times and lost uh he'll want his revenge too <laughs> so, uh you know he's got a client who has so far been very successful in the british courts uh, but, you know, I think that uh, I hope he won't find anything. Um, it's very critical of Meghan, but 
is where the criticism is fair and where I think she has got to answer for her own conduct. And, you know, she is a controversial person. She wants to be controversial. She wants to challenge. She's challenged the royal family. She has said things about the royal family which have been hugely damaging. So in the end, one asks, well, who is this person who, on the one hand, says she doesn't want to uh, be associated with the royal family in England, but still clings to her title and introduces herself to politicians in Washington as this is uh, the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle. She's always the Duchess. <laughs> so she wants it both ways. And again, the hypocrisy is always worth puncturing. And so you spoke to, you said you spoke to, it was 80 sources in the end that you interviewed. Obviously, you know, you're not going to tell me and I'm not going to ask who they are, but what, can you kind of give us a rough idea of the kind of, were they friends? Were they colleagues? Were they people that worked on set with her or a bit of, a bit of everything? Well, no, I can tell you some. And clearly I spent two days with her father in Mexico. I spent time with uh, a, a very important uh, eyewitness to her climb to fame called Gina Nelthorpe Cowan, who was her sort of publicity agent. I spoke to other agents she had um, who were very interesting about, because here's a woman, Megan, that is, who's very, very ambitious and demanding. Uh, and therefore they both satisfied her lust for money and at the same time get her exposure, which because she wanted to make her name. And then I did speak, speak to obviously people in Hollywood who want to be, remain nameless. Uh, I spoke to other journalists who dealt with her, like, for example, the Vanity Fair person or people on Vogue, because that was a very important milestone in her life. Obviously, I spoke to a lot of people associated with her in the royal context, who you call royal sources, who were very interesting. There were lawyers. There were people who served with her on various committees when she was in London. Uh, you know, it's a whole mixture. Uh, the people, obviously, the Reitman's ad, which I think is probably one of the strongest chapters about her behaviour in Montreal over two days, shooting advertisement of Reitman's a store, was fascinating because they were just uh, appalled by her behaviour. And so many of them spoke, despite having signed non-disclosure agreements. It was because they were angry. Obviously, they had to be anonymous because otherwise they get no more work. But they provided such detail that is irrefutable, their stories. Uh, uh, so it's a wide range. Uh, obviously, family, friends, acquaintances, business associates, all those sort of people. The advert one, am I getting confused? Am I getting mixed with another one? Or is that the one with the editing of the feet? Yes, Which I think right. was one of the one of the lines I wasn't expecting to read in the book, if I'm no, honest. No, <laughs> there's, there's even a photograph of it. Unfortunately, it's an Instagram, so one, one never can use it because it's a copyright problem. But the, she sends the photograph of the feet, which she wants edited, and <laughs> she wants the blemish removed. I mean, Megan is very, very conscious of her image. And that's very interesting in writers as well. The script, it, she's not satisfied with it. She complains about it because it's wrong. And actually, the ad itself uh, is very beautiful uh, and is better because of her interference, although some of the key shots were lost because she was arguing so much and they just didn't have the time in the end to do all the two or three key shots. But what is interesting about her is that uh, she, she focuses. For example, she's fascinated by Emily Watson and her claim to fame through philanthropy. She wants to be a philanthropist. The trouble is she's not famous, but she gets, gets the job. 
so to speak. She goes to Rwanda, she goes to India. She, she ticks the box as philanthropist humanist, although she only does it two or three times and then gives up. Uh, you know, this is all very interesting, the whole marketing of Megan, the brand Megan, uh, and which she's very conscious still today. It's, it, it is very interesting uh, for somebody to suddenly parachute like myself into this world and watch the rise of a woman who really was not a great actress. And I explained why, and I spoke to a lot of people in Hollywood, why they didn't cast her, why she was not ever, she wasn't going to be Meryl Streep. Uh, what's very interesting on that score, for example, is her theatre tutor at Northwestern College in uh, Chicago, who said the trouble is she didn't want to do theatre. She didn't want to do film. And the thing about theatre is it makes you really study the character and become the character so you can portray it well on stage. Well, that wasn't Megan's way. She wanted to be Megan always. She, she, she's not an actress who can actually become somebody else. She can only act herself. And of course, that means it's very limited. And all those sorts of things which you discover on the way make this book into something of a great study of a human being. You must go down so many rabbit holes when you're researching something like this and, yeah, kind of find out something, then go off completely on a tangent and a different point. It must be so interesting. I'm very jealous of your job. Um, but, right, so onto the contents of the book yourself. So what I've done is just put out a few lines that really stood out for me, if that's all right, and just to kind of – it would be great to hear – a bit more of your thoughts on them. So the first one being that the, obviously the lead up to Prince Philip's funeral um, and we didn't kind of know if the Sussexes were going to come and in the end Prince Harry came uh, to you know be part of the uh, memorial to his grandfather but we didn't have Meghan there. She said it was obviously due to, it was on doctor's advice. Um, what, you know, what did you take from, you know, your findings on that topic? Well, I think first of all, when we were watching it at the time, it was quite clear that everybody of the limited number of family who were in the chapel were very grief-stricken, but Harry didn't look grief-stricken. In my view, watching him very carefully, I thought he was impatient to leave. Uh, he was nervous. And the walk up the hill, which allegedly Kate engineered between Harry and William, was just for the cameras. I, I never thought there was any reconciliation. Uh, I think that the what I did get, the scoop I got from somebody who uh, was in the room with her before she, uh, the Queen that is, before she went down to the chapel, was that extraordinary comment, thank goodness Meghan isn't coming. Uh, I, I've absolutely no doubt that that is exactly what the Queen said, and I think we can understand very well why, because she didn't want a distraction from the, the grief and the, the ceremony, which is about Prince Philip. And uh, Meghan's presence would have been incendiary. And so I think that, uh, well, which was a magnificent occasion, I mean, the military drill was just so perfect before the funeral and after. And Meghan's presence would have been, I think, very damaging. And thank goodness, as the Queen said, she didn't come. And also, also onto the jubilee as well. Uh, there's a, you know quite a big section of the book focuses on. Again, we had no idea if Meghan and Harry were going to come until right at the last minute. And then when they did come, we really didn't see them much at all. They went to the uh, service of Thanksgiving. Um, but from people you've spoken to, have said that they really weren't happy about their small, very small roles. Well, I think the point about this is it's a fascinating story of the study of Harry, Meghan, and the, how the royal family reacted to them. Uh, 
that at the beginning, Harry made it very clear he wouldn't come unless he had special protection. And that was always considered to be his way of finding a way of not having to come unless various conditions were satisfied. Namely, he did want to be on the balcony with the Queen. He did want a prominent position in, the, uh, in St. Paul's Cathedral. He wanted to be one of the stars, as did Meghan, which they needed for their Netflix uh, bio series, which is a key part of their income to build themselves up. And in the weeks and months, actually, even months before that happened, I was writing quite a few papers that it would be a disgrace if the royal family allowed Meghan and Harry all this publicity and position because they behaved so badly. And the British public wouldn't understand it if they were on the balcony, etc. And I think they played, the Harry and Meghan played it very badly because when they came and popped in on the Queen on their way to Holland to the Invictus Games, that would have been okay if Harry hadn't done this interview with NBC afterwards in Holland, where he said he'd gone to see his grandmother just to check because he wasn't happy the way the people around her were protecting her. I thought that was an unbelievably foolish thing to say, because clearly it would have annoyed uh, William and Charles. But also, he was asked, did he miss his father and brother and refused to answer? So that would have alienated them. So I think that alerted them that they just has got, they had to uh, act without um, Harry and, and cut him off. So I, what's fascinating is that they announced that Harry would not be, would not be on the balcony. They announced that they would not have a prominent position in St Paul's. And that could have closed the Sussexes down. But 18 minutes later... They had accepted the invitation to come. So that was pretty clever, finally, of Charles and William to uh, push the uh, Sussexes into a corner. And then I think they did even better. What's interesting is, you see, I was told, unfortunately, too late for the book, but that uh, they were meant to turn up at Wellington Barracks to get on the coach, which was set up for all the minor royals to go to St Paul's for the Jubilee service. And they arrived deliberately late. So the bus had gone. So they could make a grand entrance from a car uh, and just be seen on the steps, which Netflix obviously needed. And then as they walk down the aisle, they get to the seats which they're assigned, the row they're assigned to. And I'm told they then ask the six other people, seven other people um, sitting uh, this side of the aisle, could they move down so they could sit at the, uh, on the aisle itself? And the usher apparently says, no, you can't. You're sitting in seats eight or nine, whatever it was. And Harry said, why? And the usher said to him, because that's what your grandmother ordered. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm told that from a military man as well. I believe them. It's like the military man who told me this extraordinary story about Meghan when she arrived at the wedding uh, in Windsor Castle, that glorious day in uh, 2018. And you see her get out of the car and accompanied, and she has problems with her train of her dress. And no one steps forward, to, the, the army officer doesn't step forward to help her. And the reason is that the day before, in the rehearsal, she'd been very rude to him. So he thought, well, I'm not going to help you today. And I didn't get the story from him, but from his uh, fellow officer of his, who explained what had happened. And that is the story of Meghan. She, she is so rude to people, they then decide, right, I'll get my own back. In the moments where everyone's looking as well, and that's the that's the difference. But as you mentioned, that that the at the uh, church service, the service of um, Thanksgiving, 
you saw that it was a bit of an awkward moment, wasn't it? And everything with the Royals is normally so done. You know, the seats are done so that everyone can get there in the wrong order. But there was that moment, wasn't there, when like, was it uh, Beatrice and Eugenie and their husbands kind of had to stand up and let them through? It felt like, you know, when us normal people go to the cinema and you're the annoying one that gets there late and you've got to like shuffle along, haven't you? And it just looked so out of place at a Royal event because normally it's so done like clockwork that it did look kind of obvious that something maybe hadn't quite gone to plan. Exactly, and that that now you have the explanation of why they, they, they deliberately staged it so they could make a grand entrance, but didn't in the end have grand seats, and are shuffled off onto the side and uh, are oblivious. And of course, Charles and William don't look at them and Kate as they leave, so they're very isolated. And what's interesting is that they then leave the following day. Uh, most people think early in somewhat of a dudgeon because. They're not part of the ceremony thereafter. Because I was really surprised not to see them. I thought we'd see them again at the uh, People's Pageant, you know, the Sunday celebrations of the Jubilee, because that's when we saw, you know, all the royals were there. And it was an, it was more, it felt to me, you might describe it, it felt it was more like a fun family day out, wasn't it? They were all laughing. Obviously, Louis completely stole the show and was having the time of his life when he wasn't unbelievably bored and pulling every sort of face going. Like that felt more of, would have been a really lovely opportunity to see them all interacting. And I was really surprised not to see them there, actually. Well, I think there was a purpose. They didn't want to be seen interacting. I mean, the, they are not in part of the royal family. They themselves, at their own wish, have divorced themselves from the family. And I think that they weren't going to be accorded the possibility of mixing with the royals in that way. And that was deliberate. It had to happen, of course, in Drooping of the Colour, uh, they were only seen at a which you were only seen at a window, um, and that that's the that's the price they paid. They wanted to leave. Uh, why should they be part of the family and be applauded by the British people? And I think after the Oprah interview and that's the aftermath and the terribly damaging things that uh, Meghan said about the royal family being racist, which I don't believe for a moment, uh, they weren't going to actually get the reward that they wanted, which was lovely pictures for the Netflix film and now they've got a problem. One of the other things that you looked into, and this is one of the things that so many people, myself included, are fascinated by, and and that's the relationship between Kate and Meghan. We've had such different reports over the years of that they were great friends, then some saying that they were, what was the line, it was they're very different women to that they really, really didn't get on. There's, you know, I think there's been reports of every single one of those lines. What did you find and having spent a very long time looking into it, what was your kind of overall opinion of the relationship the two royal women share? Because there was so much hope for them to be really close, wasn't there? Oh, absolutely. And I think so the Fab Four was the future of the monarchy. And uh, the problem really is that Meghan didn't want it to be the Fab Four. She wanted it really to be the Fab One. I think that's part of it. Uh, she wanted to be number one. I couldn't understand why she wasn't given the spotlight. Um, and, I mean, let us go back to the beginning. Uh, Kate and Meghan are such different women. I mean, such different backgrounds. Here's Meghan, who worked hard, suffered, uh, struggled, and all the rest of it. And there is Kate, who appears to have had a gilded, smooth passage into being the future queen as an English middle-class girl without any financial problems. So, no, and a wonderful family, unlike Meghan, who had a broken family. So I think Meghan, understandably, 
would have felt that she was entitled to a bit more under a bit more respect from Kate the way she came up. But I I think the the physical uh, problem is this that uh, Meghan moved into Harry's two bedroom cottage, Nottingham Cottage in Kensington Palace, and across the corridor were the Cambridges twenty two bedroom or twenty two room two kitchen vast <laughs> mini palace. And, uh, and and Meghan was expected to curtsy to Kate. I mean, formally, because she was superior. And this didn't suit Meghan at all. She had made it clear in her engagement interview, she sort of was going to hit the ground running and she was going to change the world and use the royal uh, position she now had to campaign for various rights. Well, that isn't, that isn't the, the description on the box. Her job is... Uh, to obey one person, to glorify one person who's the only person who's on top, and that's the Queen. And she's got to fall into line, but she, she couldn't do it and didn't want to do it. That's the whole point. She didn't want to become uh, an appendage to the monarchy. I don't believe she really ever really wanted to stay the moment she really began realising what the role meant. And Harry, on the other hand, also was unhappy. Harry was fed up being um, a, a lowly royal. Um, he's an unhappy man anyway, he says on his own account. And she offered him an escape from from the uh, rigours and discipline. And so I think it was rather, uh, uh, unfortunately, it was predestined that they'd want to move out of England and go back to California. And in terms of her relationship with Kate, to get back to your question, uh, the thing about Kate is that she is she understands the problems of being in the spotlight, the future queen, the discipline, the self-control, the uh, politeness, the swallowing of, of unhappiness and all the rest of it. Uh, and that's something Meghan did not stand. And Kate, I think, when it came to this famous story about preparing for Meghan's wedding and the tears and that, you know, she was pregnant, she had a young children, she had a lot on her mind, here was a Californian uh, princess who really thought she would dictate the way a wedding, wedding should be arranged. She brought her friend uh, Jessica Mulroney from Toronto to give her support. She was breaking royal conventions. Uh, you know, what Meghan gets is what Meghan, Meghan gets what Meghan wants, is what Harry says, and it's true. And so she and uh, Kate were not going to get on because they both had very, very different expectations. Kate's expectation was to serve the Queen and the royal and the monarchy, and Meghan's were to serve herself and her own interests and her own ambition. And that, that had to clash. And as well as focusing on Meghan and Harry, obviously there's lots of parts about the kind of wider royal family within this in terms of the relationship they had and, you know, kind of different situations they were in. Did your opinion of the the royal family as a whole change through your research? Well, I think the problem is that, as I said right at the beginning, my book on Prince Charles showed the royal family to be a pretty difficult institution to fall in love with overall. I mean, Charles has a lot, a lot of problems in his life and it caused a lot of problems, not least financial and the, the problem with Camilla and Diana and all the baggage he brings with lobbying for all his various interests. So that was a problem straight from the beginning to, uh, to live with. 
Uh, I think he changed a lot after my book came out. He became far quieter, far more stable, and began abandoning a lot of his eccentricities. And then came up the problem of Andrew, which is just horrendous. And uh, on the other side is, of course, uh, the hard work of Princess Anne and the rest. It is a very difficult family, like all families, and always in this public case. So I think when it comes to royal family, if it's a choice between the extraordinary service and this wonderful monarch we now have, and the alternative being sort of a president who's a politician with all his flaws, like President Blair or whatever, or President Boris Johnson or whatever, you just think, my God, aren't we lucky to have the Queen uh, as the head of state, which always dilutes the power of the politician. So I think Britain is uniquely lucky to have the monarchy. I think it's one of the reasons we've got a very stable and enduring democracy, why we have a country where there's such tolerance. Uh, and I think the tolerance is created to a great extent by the monarch and their conduct. I think that the Commonwealth, you know, which is quite unique, uh, embraces nearly a quarter of a third of mankind of every diverse nationality and everything. And that's fantastic. And the, 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 the Queen epitomizes it. The tragedy is that Meghan could have been such an important force in all this. She could have respected the Commonwealth if she'd only seen it's not about her. But you see, she misunderstood even Diana. I mean, if I can just carry on a second. I mean, what's interesting is, you see, that she, Harry kept on saying, this is just like Diana, the persecution of Meghan. But of course, Diana, we could talk about for years, but one thing about Diana was she, in all her utterings against Charles, she never challenged the position of the Queen. She never undermined the hallowed institution of the monarchy. She never criticized anyone other than Camilla and Charles for obvious reasons. And Meghan crossed that boundary. She crossed that frontier. She attacked the lot. And that is why, in the end, I wrote this book. One of the reasons is because it's too precious to let um, a woman from California damage it the way she tried to damage the way she did. It'll endure, but it is damaged. And so I think that the monarchy is genius. And she didn't realize that, she, uh, Megan, is it's constantly modernizing, is constantly changing, but you don't see it happen. It, uh, it's done in secret, it's done quietly, incrementally, but the monarchy today is completely different, completely to what it was when Queen went to the throne in 1953. And that is only because they're constantly thinking, how can we make ourselves acceptable, modern, all the rest of it. She didn't understand it. She didn't understand Britain. She didn't want to. That is really the major complaint. She didn't try to understand the extraordinary family into which she had entered because she wanted them to accept her it wasn't a matter of her accepting them. And that, in the end, is why it broke down. Fantastic. Well, that's so interesting. Thank you so much for talking me through everything. So the book is on sale now. Uh, so that is Revenge, Meghan Harry and the War Between the Windsors. Thank you so much for joining me. It was lovely to chat to you. Thank you very much for having me, sir. Thank you so much to everyone for listening this week. As always, we're on social media, Twitter and Instagram at Podsave. And until next time. Podsave the Queen!